exactly, but it's a pretty fair guess that at any moment several hundred million people are communicating with each other, working, sharing, living big chunks of their lives via internet conferencing platforms. Doctors diagnose, businesses operate, music and theatre happen, parliaments sit, all in virtual space. But where and how did this technology emerge? Well, to answer that, we have to go back quite a way. Communication's always been important, and plenty of inventors have worked on the problem. From the early days of semaphore and heliographs, things which could outpace even the fastest of horses, through to more contemporary ideas like telegraphs, telephones, radios, and the wonders of the 20th century. And some pretty big names were involved as well. Edison, Tesla, Marconi, Bell, all of them chasing down the elusive possibility of widespread, fast communication at a distance. Now, one group of people with a particular interest has always been the military. After all, knowing what's going on on the battlefield and in the political circles around it is crucial as swords or guns. But in the 1960s, during the Cold War, there was another urgent concern. Nuclear weapons raised the possibility of whole communication systems being wiped out. What was needed was some form of decentralised communication network. And so funds began to move in the direction of finding out how. At the same time, this burgeoning world of computing was drawing in a variety of people, swirling them together in what would become an important soup of ideas. For example, Bob Taylor, a restless psychology student who dabbled in psychoacoustics, but who had a passion for what this new computer technology could do. One that he shared with Joseph Licklieder, who he'd met in 1962 after reading Licklieder's essay on man-machine symbiosis, in which he talked about new ways of working with computers. They began talking, hit it off, and developed a vision. One that in 1965 began to take more tangible shape as Licklieder persuaded Taylor to join him in working together at the IPTO. The IPTO? Well, that's the Information Processing Techniques Office, and it was part of the huge Defence Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, which, amongst other things, was looking at the decentralised communication problem. Specifically, ways of linking the major defence computers of the Pentagon, Strategic Air Command headquarters, and at Cheyenne Mountain, the secretive complex buried under Colorado mountains and housing NORAD, the air defence for North America. IPTO gave the two men the opportunity and the funding, which was diverted from a ballistic missile project, to explore the idea of an ARPA-NET linking different computers at different locations. Interestingly, their nickname for the loose community of researchers engaged around the project was some indication of their underlying ambition. It was called the Intergalactic Computer Network. Two important ideas emerged during the early stages of the project. In 1966, one of their team, Wesley Clark, suggested that they use a dedicated computer an interface message processor to give it its proper title, at each node of the network, instead of having one large centralised controller. And then, in 1967, 
they went to a conference on new computer techniques. Now, the problem of decentralized communications isn't just one of making sure enough computers survive an attack and can link up with each other. There's also the challenge of making sure whatever messages they send arrive safely. One idea being explored simultaneously on both sides of the Atlantic was to break the messages down into small chunks, transmit them via different routes across a computer network, and then reassemble them at their destination. And it was this idea that so excited the ARPANET team, drawing on the ideas of Paul Baran, who was working at the time for the RAND Corporation in the United States, and Donald Davies of the British National Physical Laboratory, who developed a local area network based on what he called packet switching. A third player, Leonard Kleinrock, contributed the underlying mathematical models which enabled this theory to be put into practice. The basic idea is like a postal network, one in which the postman doesn't always take the same route and often rings many times. The message you want to send is broken down into small chunks, packets, each of which is given a destination address and some other identifying information, and then it's sent via different routes before being reassembled at the destination address. And then a message goes back the other way, confirming receipt. If that doesn't happen, the sender repeats the transmission. Great in theory. But on October 29th, 1969, the ARPANET delivered its first message, a node-to-node -node communication from one computer to another. The first computer was located in a research lab at the University of California in Los Angeles, and the second was at Stanford Research Institute. Each of these computers was the size of a small house. The message, log in, was pretty short and simple. Uh, Leonard Kleinrock described in a later interview what actually happened. We typed the L and we asked on the phone, did you see the L? Yes, we see the L, came the response. We typed the O and we asked, do you see the O? Yes, we see the O. Then we typed the G and the system crashed. Some things never change. Just when you get to the important bit, your system goes down. But the demonstration proved the point. Within three weeks, there was a permanent computer link between the two sites, and a month after that, a four-node network linking three sites in California and a fourth in Utah. Now, if October 1969 was the birthday of the Internet, it had a rather late christening, one which came five years afterwards, buried in a technical document called an RFC. A request for comments. It described for the first time an internetworking, shortened to internet, of computers, linked by a common protocol. Sounds pretty dry and technical, but it was rather important, not just because RFC 675, dated December 1974, contributed the catchy name Internet. It also highlighted a growing problem of traffic control across that network. Not surprisingly, once the ARPANET team had proved the system could work, they began using it extensively. And pretty soon there was so much data flowing that there was a need to organise it. 
Packet switching's fine until the mail system starts to struggle with the sheer volume of packages and the many different addresses to which and through which they're to be sent. Without some form of traffic control, the whole thing risks seizing up. Enter TCP slash IP. Initials you've almost certainly seen, but probably don't have a clue about. But they are in fact the basis for a universally accepted addressing scheme, developed by Bob Calm and Vince Cerf and described in that RFC. It's an elegant idea. Basically, the IP part, the Internet Protocol, obtains the destination address, and the TCP part, the Transmission Control Protocol, guarantees delivery of data to that address. It took a couple more years to work out the details, but on November 22nd, 1977, an important event took place in the back of a repurposed bread delivery van. The van had been refitted with some expensive radio communication equipment, which enabled it to send a message from California to Boston, on to Norway, then to Great Britain, and back to California by way of a small town in West Virginia. Importantly, it was also sent via three different networks, the ARPANET, a packet radio network, and a satellite network. The global internet had arrived. But at this point, attention shifts from the how of communication to the what, and in particular to the communities who needed to share information. There was an explosion of interest amongst universities and research centres sharing on an international scale. And their students were not to be left out either. In addition to exploiting the growing internet possibilities for their studies, they also developed the idea of a Usenet linking a huge range of communities with shared interests. And of course, the business market began to see the significant possibilities, not least through using the X25 networks, which had emerged as much of the DARPA work was gradually declassified. And then in 1989, at one particular research centre, CERN, which drew together international scientists working on nuclear physics under a mountain in Switzerland, Tim Berners-Lee, developed ideas which brought Lick Leader's original ideas about a global information library to life. He used emerging principles of hypertext links, linking up internal and external networks to create an information system accessible from any node on the network. And he developed the first web server and the first web browser called World Wide Web, later renamed Nexus. Now, there's decentralization and there's decentralization. The difficulty with decentralizing things is you tend to lose control. When ARPANET was a defense project, it was fairly straightforward to keep the lid on it. But with the explosion of the networks which became the Internet and the proliferation of resources and traffic flowing across it in a world wide web, it pretty soon took on a life of its own. And one place where that happened big time was the slightly shadowy world of wares. Now, this community had had a long-standing interest in sharing resources of various kinds, not always fully respecting legal frameworks like copyright and intellectual property law. For them, the emergence of the Internet opened the floodgates of innovation with opportunities and challenges for hacking. 
But the makeup of this community was also changing. With the advent of the MP3, the possibilities in sharing music became apparent to millions of people. And pretty soon, there were file-sharing platforms like Napster springing up everywhere to enable this. With the inevitable response on the part of the mainstream music industry to try and close them down again. But the more they tried to put the lid on the pot, the more innovation spilled out in new directions. In particular, the idea of peer-to-peer -peer networking was born. One where people shared resources such as processing power, disk storage or network bandwidth without the need for central coordination by servers or stable hosts. Around the turn of the century, we had generations of peer-to-peer -peer players offering variations on the core trajectory in a pattern reminiscent of a passage out of the Old Testament where Napster begat Nutella, begat LimeWire, begat Kazar, begat Morpheus, begat and so on. The pace of innovation came to resemble a high-speed car chase with ever more ingenious approaches to staying one step ahead of the law. And by this time, it wasn't just music, there was a growing movement towards video sharing, which in turn drove innovation in yet another direction. Video files are big. Where MP3 had managed to get sound files to manageable proportions, video represented a huge challenge which couldn't easily be solved just through compression. Instead, in 2001, Bram Cohen revisited an old idea. He'd been working on a project called Mojo Nation, designed to help people exchange confidential files securely by breaking them up into encrypted chunks and distributing those pieces on computers also running the software. Not a million miles from the original packet switching concept. So if someone wanted to download a copy of this encrypted file, they'd have to download it simultaneously from many computers. This had the big advantage over other file sharing programs like Kazaa, which took a long time to download large files because they typically only came from one source, a single peer in a peer-to-peer -peer network. Cohen's idea was refined into the BitTorrent protocol, which was able to download files from many different sources at the same time, massively speeding up the download time. And the real advantage came because it had a built-in accelerator the more popular a file was, the faster users could download it since there were more computers involved, from which other users could also download. It was a runaway success, even by the fast diffusion standards of the P2P world. Within a year, it represented close to 70% of total internet traffic, and within 10 years accounted for close to 200 million users, with around 30 million concurrently active at any moment. The genie was well and truly out of the bottle. But gradually, the music and media industries began adopting an alternative approach to dealing with this kind of large-scale piracy. An approach based on finding new business models which allowed legal use of media shared across the internet. Apple pioneered much of this with their iTunes platform, bringing in the complementary assets around the music publishing and recording industries, and Spotify took that model further by moving to a rental rather than an ownership approach. But in both cases, the strategy was based on improving quality and accessibility. Netflix and others followed a similar pathway for films with their proprietary alternatives to BitTorrent. Importantly, 
All of these legal systems drew heavily on innovations originally developed by the pirate communities. Of course, pirates face a choice. They can continue to raid at the edges of an increasingly precarious ocean, or they can put the proceeds of their adventures into a new venture, something which Niklas Zenström from Sweden and Janus Fries from Denmark did after they'd sold their stakes in their P2P site, Kazar. Together with Estonian developers Zati Heinler, Pritkasasalo and Jan Tallinn, they took their learning about distributed peer-to-peer networks and looked at it as a mechanism for carrying high volumes of data. In particular, they began exploring new possibilities in voice transmission, effectively internet telephony. And they founded a company called Sky Peer-to-Peer in 2003, quickly giving it a catchier name, Skype. And they added video calling to the range of capabilities on their voice network. By the time they sold it to eBay, it was worth $2.5 billion, and Microsoft later bought it for $8.5 billion. But of course, its biggest impact was in creating the template for what has become today such a hugely important industry in these pandemic times, online conferencing. We should perhaps remember we've seen this kind of pattern before in the world of communications. At the tail end of the 19th century, there was another explosion of technological change and market expansion, this time around the railways. One that also involved a mixture of the formal and the informal, the legal and the not so legal. And one which was driven by pioneering entrepreneurs and a high rate of innovation. So the context might change, but in many ways, the innovation game remains remarkably stable. 